0: a new testament reading from the epistle of first peter chapter 3 beginning with verse 14 the word of the lord but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed have no fear of them nor be troubled but in your hearts honor christ the lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you a reason for the hope that is in you yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that you, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the word of the Lord. She got married at a young age to an evil man, and he died. The Bible says that God took him. And then she got married to his brother, and he was an evil man, and he died. The Bible says that God was the one who took him of the mothers of Jesus, of those women that are highlighted in the genealogy of Jesus Christ as presented in the first chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew. In that genealogy, there are women who are highlighted very unusually within a Hebrew, within a Semitic genealogy. Usually it's just the men, but the women are pointed out. And one of them was a woman by the name of Tamar, and her life was a life of hardship. We're going to read about her in Genesis 38. We're going to read verses 11 to 19 and 24 to 30 as we learn the story of Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother, Tamar. This is the word of the Lord. Judah, that is her father-in-law, then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar after her second husband died, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, he too may die, just like his brothers. And so Tamar went to live in her father's house and after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shuah, died and when Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were she- shearing his sheep and, and his friend Hirah the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah, for she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. And after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. And in verse 24, we continue. About three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them. And he said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her room. And as she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when the, he drew back his hand, his brother came out. And she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he named him Perez, which means breakthrough or break out. And then his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and he was given the name Zerah. It's a beautiful picture of the idealized Christian family. <laughs> One of the reasons I believe the Bible is because it has stuff like this in it. The people who wrote this would not have wanted, it would, not have, it would have not advantaged them to have made their precious ancestors look this bad. And yet it's in there because it was true, and they believe that God wanted it in there. It's what we see here in Scripture is stories like this. What do we do with this? If you assume that the Bible is a book of stories, fables with a moral at the end, then you're really going to be confused by this one. I mean, you got incest, you got deception, you got a selfish, you know, creepy father-in-law. It's just a mess. And yet, the Bible is not a book of of fairy tales or fables with morals at the end. It's a story of redemption. It's a story about a God who chooses a shameful, sinful people and pursues them and loves them and saves them as his very own. What do we see here? We see uh, uh, main characters. That's what we're going to look at. We see three main characters. We see a woman who is falsely blamed for tragedy, and her life is made miserable on account of that. We see the, father, uh, the, 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 the father-in-law who blames her and uh, really makes her life miserable. And then if we step out and expand to the big picture and understand that both Tamar and that son Perez and the man who made Tamar's life miserable are all ancestors of Jesus, then we see the story of the one who actually came to take the blame that she was falsely carried. So what do we see here? We see first the woman who was falsely blamed. This is Tamar. Her father-in-law, Judah, is making her life absolutely impossible. Uh, you know, What had happened is, is she'd had, he'd had a son, and he gave his son to Tamar. And evil son, the son dies. The Bible says that God took the son. God was responsible. But then he gives her the next son. And he dies also. He was the one who refused to provide a, a ch- children for her. And, and it's a, then he's looking at it and he's thinking, you know, okay, I've given her two sons and they both died. Obviously she had something to do with it. And Tamar has realized at this point, he's told her, go live in your father's house. And then when my third son, my youngest son is old enough, then you can marry him. But he actually has no intention of ever following through on that because he's blaming her for the loss of the first two. You know, realize Tamar was probably about 19 years old at this point, and she is already widowed twice over you know, it's a tribal society. She couldn't move to the big city. There were no cities. She couldn't, you know, go independently get a a job of her own because that was not appropriate at the time for a single woman or a widow. And since these two husbands are dead, nobody's going to choose her as a bride at this point. She's in an extremely vulnerable position, and there's nobody who will be there to take care of her when she grows old, which for her would mean that there are only so many options as an independent woman to take care of herself, to put food on the table. She could sell herself into slavery, or she could sell herself through other means. And the Hebrew scripture, as a result, had laws that would ultimately be codified by Moses to to address this exact situation. It was the law of leveret marriage. When a woman was widowed, it was the obligation of her father-in-law to find one of his other sons to take her on as a wife, because the obligation was not just to take care of her and her future, but to take care of the, the dead brother's, property because he needs descendants that his property will go to that will carry on his name as well. It was an issue of of justice, even though it seems kind of like seedy and, and dirty to us. It was a way of making sure that families in a tribal society continued, that no one was exterminated, that the line would continue and that the women would be taken care of in their future. And so this is what's going on. And, and, and the problem was that, the, you know, the second husband refused to give her children. That was Onan. He was happy to have her as a wife, but not to father her children. And so, you know, there's this question, what's going to happen to Tamar? And, and, and the injustice that she's experiencing from her father-in-law, he says in verse 16, he may die too, just like his brothers. He's not going to give his third son to her. You know, by doing that, it's actually a very, very cruel thing because he is choosing to destroy her life in direct disobedience to the law of God, the moral will of God that would be codified later by Moses. Verse 14, Tamar saw that though Shelah the third son had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. What does that mean? To any Jewish reader, Judah's actions would have come across as exceptionally cruel and heartless both toward his firstborn son and toward his daughter-in-law, Tamar, who would be helpless, alone, and ultimately victimized for the rest of her life. And he's doing it specifically because he is blaming her. Look at his logic. Judah thinks she's responsible. When he says he may die just like his brothers, that's what he's saying. You know, he's not able to take responsibility the fact that his first son was an evil man, and his second son was an incredibly selfish, incredibly evil man. And as a father, he can't seem able to to own that, that maybe it was even his fathering that had something to do with the fact, because Judah up to this point has been an absolute wicked scoundrel, even though God blessed him. He was not a good man, and his sons were not good men. And, uh, you know, maybe it's just too much shame for him to 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 take that in. Too big of a stain on the family honor to admit that kind of reality and so he assumes wrongly all of this time that she was somehow to blame. Do you know what it's like to be blamed for something that you did not do? Do you know what it's like to be falsely accused? Do you know what it's like when there are people saying things about you that simply are not true? you know what it's like when a client or a co-worker says something about you that will damage your reputation, perhaps destroy your career or damage your marriage? Do you know what it's like when you're blamed for something that went wrong, even though you had nothing to do with it when it went wrong? When someone assigns negative intentions to your actions that were not your actual intentions, when somebody sees you as the place to unload their anger, guilt, their shame, do you know what it feels like? when you begin to internalize all their negativity and you begin to second guess, you begin to question yourself and think, maybe I am to blame, you can imagine Tamar, what's going on inside of her, we don't know. The text doesn't give us that window, but if you've been in that position, you can begin to imagine what it would have been like being on the receiving end of blame. It's emotionally exhausting. It's exasperating. It's painful. It makes you feel so tiny like nothing you do is good enough or ever will be good enough. It breaks down your sense of self and leaves you with a growing sense of resentment and anger. It's incredibly hard to be the scapegoat, to be the fall guy, the punching bag, the patsy, the one who takes the blame, to be hated for something you didn't do, like Tamar, to suffer great pain and losing not one but two husbands, and then to be blamed for your very loss, the very family you should be able to turn to for comfort is the same family that is pointing the finger at you and that now hates you, despises you, wants you dead. They're not safe. They lie and deceive. You know, some of you know what it's like to be blamed, and Tamar's father-in-law is making her life impossibly difficult and really destroying her future and he's doing it because he's blaming her for something that was not her responsibility. The text says God did it and that they were to blame. And so Tamar, what does she do? She swings into action. The Hebrew accentuates the deliberate and methodical method of it. She carefully crafted a plan, and it's unbelievably beautiful brilliant, actually. The Hebrew accentuates her boldness with a series of action verbs. She took off her widow's clothes. She covered herself with a veil. She disguised herself so she couldn't be recognized. She sat down. She waited. She asked for a staff. She asked for the signet ring. Then she got away before he could realize what had happened. She knew exactly what she was doing, and Judah never knew it was his daughter-in-law, and it was simply stunning in its strategic brilliance. Mean the, the signet ring, the staff, what was the signet ring, a signet ring was the equivalent of a driver's license in the ancient Near East. It would have been a little clay cylinder that you could roll onto clay to to put your imprint, your signature, your marking down to seal a document or to seal a package. And And the, the staff would have probably been attached to it by cord. Uh, these were things that only very wealthy, very powerful men would have had. And it's sort of like if you're at a restaurant and your credit card doesn't go through, you might leave your driver's license while you go go home to get another credit card or leaving your wallet there as proof that you will come back and actually pay your bill and that's what she does she's promised uh, an animal and uh, but she holds on to these things and then she skips town and uh, he's left with it and just as incredibly the Bible does not moralize about Tamar's actions at this point Yeah, incest isn't really encouraged in the Bible and uh, you know Uh, Deception's not really always a good thing, but but the Bible doesn't make that point here. Maybe it's a given, but the text makes nothing of that fact. Uh, In fact, to the contrary, the Bible calls Tamar's actions a quest for justice, and it says that she is more righteous than her father-in-law, uh, justice, righteousness. That's the biblical category because she is a protected class. She is a widow, and everybody is obligated to make sure every single widow is taken care of in the Bible. Isaiah 117, God says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice and plead the widow's cause. Deuteronomy twenty seven nineteen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the widow. God even describes himself as the God of widows. Deuteronomy 10. The Lord executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. It's about justice. The Bible doesn't call this charity for Tamar. She's not looking for charity. That's not the language that scripture uses. Charity might imply that it's optional. The Bible uses the term justice because they were obligated to take care of the lonely person in the family of faith. It's justice because we owe to people care that we're required by the Bible to give to them. And and the laws that would eventually be handed down through Moses require us to provide descendants to a woman in this specific situation. That's the term that Judah even uses in verse 26 when he says, she is more than I. The term is, is tzedakah, or, or righteousness, or justice. She is more righteous than I. She is more just than I am. For I wouldn't give her my son, Judas says. We see in Tamar this brilliant woman who has been accused unjustly and whose life is being ruined and who steps into action. What else do we see here? We see the man who is blaming her for his first two sons' death. That is specifically Judah. We see Judah's hypocrisy here. You can see Judah's double standard in his attitudes about sexuality. Judah thinks nothing of engaging in his own indiscretion with somebody that he meets on the side of a road. But uh, this is not the kind of relationship that's good or healthy for anyone involved. And yet Judah has no problem engaging in these sorts of behaviors. And yet, and, and in fact, it's interesting. Note that Tamar's entire plan assumes that he will seek this out. She just goes and she knows what roads he's going to be on and she just goes and sits on the road and she knows he's going to proposition. How does she know that? probably seen it before every time. Her plan, the the brilliance of it, is it absolutely relies on the fact that he will never turn this down. She knows him. She's been in his household. She knows his sons. She knows his real character. She knows what kind of guy she is. Her plan would have never worked were it not that he was exactly that kind of guy. And yet, when he finds out that she's pregnant, he wants her executed. That's a double standard. That's the hypocrisy that we see in Judah up to this point. We see his hypocrisy, but we also see in him a murderous rage. Did you notice his response when he learns that Tamar has become pregnant with an unknown man's child? The, the original readers would have been shocked and horrified by his response. In the the biblical Hebrew, his response when he learns about his his sweet and beloved 19-year-old daughter-in-law, Tamar, who's had such a hard life up to this point that he's treated so poorly, he finds out that she's pregnant, and there's a two-word response. Take, burn for his daughter-in-law under his protection that he's biblically required to provide another son to his response, in his hypocrisy, is a murderous rage. Take Burr. Not, let's put her on trial. Let's gather evidence. Let's find out what's going on. Let's do the biblical thing and find out who the guy is so that they can both face whatever punishment comes. No, it's, you know, even the strictest interpretation of Jewish law would have seen this response on his part as extremely out of proportion. And so it gives us a window that you know To burn a human being was to torture them until they die. It, it's an act of extreme degradation whose goal is to inflict pain. Take, burn, take her, and burn her. All of those years of blaming her is bubbling up and erupting inside his heart and overflowing in extreme rage and human cruelty. He's thinking, I knew it all along. She was the one to blame. Now's my chance. Burn her absolutely evil. We see the man blaming Tamar. We see a man whose pain and loss have been filtered through his own denial and his own shame, calcifying his heart and leaving him embittered and cruel, a murderous hypocrite who thinks nothing, uh, 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 who thinks nothing of taking a human being and destroying them in the most painful way possible. If Tamar seems physically hopeless at this point, Her father-in-law, Judah, appears spiritually hopeless. And yet we see what happens when God actually intervenes and convicts him of his cruelty. He is just about to do the most wicked thing he would ever do in his entire life. He's about to take his own daughter-in-law, a teenager, who he's already treated unjustly, and put her through the most cruel degradation possible. And what happens in verse 25 as she was being brought out she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. And what happens is absolutely staggering. We might expect Judah to brush it aside, to dismiss it, to get defensive, to make excuses, to deny the truth. That's what people do when they're caught. They go on the attack. They deflect. They get angry. They get violent. But Tamar's words slice right through the middle of Judah's soul. She's laid the truth before him, and for the first time in his life, it has sliced into him deeply. For the first time in his life, he experiences what we theologians sometimes call conviction. Indeed, I think theologically we could call this his conversion. You know, look at the previous chapter and then you look at the chapters that follow in the rest of Genesis, and there's every reason to believe that this is the singular turning point in Judah's life. In the very previous chapter, Judah was the head of the brothers, figuring out how first to murder their youngest brother because he's filled with jealousy and envy of of, of his brother and his technicolor dream coat. And and he's And when they can't murder him, then they sell him into slavery. That's the kind of person he is. And that's consistent with what we see even at this point, one chapter later. And yet the next time Judah turns up, he is a changed man. He is no longer the manipulator, no longer selfish, no longer degraded, no longer spreading false reports. He has become uh, uh, convicted. But up till now, he's been convinced that he's one of the good people And that the problem is with the world is that there are people like Tamar in it. That she's the evil one. And in a moment, all of that reverses. And he sees through her words, he sees that he's one of the wicked people. That Tamar is more righteous than he is that she has been his victim, that he is the transgressor, the big shameful sinner, the unjust one, that he's the one who was unholy and offensive to God, that his heart is the one that's on its way to destruction. In a moment, everything changes at the heart level. It's as if there's a voice more powerful than Tamar's that's speaking through her words. You know, there's that, that point in The Lion King, uh, the original Disney Lion King, uh, where where Simba is just a little cub and he's being and he and his female sidekick uh, are being chased by the hyenas and they're running and they end up kind of in this blind alley up against this wall and they're 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 cowering and and you know these hyenas are just over top of them and they're talking about eating them and you know it's going to be a bloodbath they got blood in their eyes and and Simba gets up his his big roar and he goes Phew. and they just make fun of him and he 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 tries it again and 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 he he gets up all his muster and he opens his mouth and hear this massive roar and they look up and they realize that above him and behind him is Mufasa his father the king and that's what's happening see if you recognize who these belong to and there's a voice that is far more powerful than hers that is speaking above her behind her through her and is able to slice through the heart of a hardened man the voice of god that converts the unconverted and as a, you know as a pastor it's one of my biggest concerns for all of you is that you be converted at the heart level. It's not always clear when that happens, especially if you were raised in the church, but but conversion can look like a lot of different things, and it's hard to quantify from the outside, but but a person who has been converted to Christ, their heart has changed at a basic level. Still sinners, absolutely. I'm the biggest one in the room. I always know that, but there's also a newfound heart for God. Bible uses so many images to describe what that looks like. It can look like a valley of dry bones, human bones, that, that the Spirit of God, the wind of God breathes upon. God breathes upon them, and they, flesh starts coming on them, and they become alive again, and they stand up as a great army ready to do the Father's will. It can look like somebody who's dead, who's made alive again. Conversion looks like somebody with a heart of stone, where that heart is transformed into a heart of flesh, or where God takes a heart that's cold toward him and makes it warm toward him. Conversion is when God takes a heart that's not really that interested in God, that wants to get away from God and transforms that into a heart in which God is something beautiful and desirable. It's when God takes away unbelief and gives instead a heart that trusts whatever God has to say. It's a work of God. It's supernatural. It's not our doing. It's not about making a decision or raising a hand. It's not about walking an aisle conversion is a change of the heart's direction from self to God, a resting in God's grace, a realization that the problem with the world is not that there are people like Tamar in it, but there are people like me in it. And then seeing the beauty and the grace of a God who delights in welcoming sinners to himself, it's a, it, it makes you accept the truth no matter how hard that truth is. Conversion makes you see God as something desirable and beautiful and enables you to believe the grace of God. It's, it's a work of God. And, and what we see when God opens up Judah's heart is in verse 26, Judah recognized them and he said, She is more righteous More just than I, since I would not give her my son, Shelah. Notice what he's saying. He's, He's not saying she's strictly righteous. He's saying, compared to me, she's more righteous than I am. He's seeing his own sin for the first time, and it's not even his sexual sin that's convicting him at that moment. It's, it's that he would not take care of his daughter-in-law by providing her his next son in accordance with uh, the will of God and in accordance with his own promise. Uh, he had refused God and refusing her, and, and, and God convicted him, and now he's weeping at the first time seeing how he's victimized this young woman and destroyed her life and almost tortured her. Uh, comes to the defense. He comes to the defense of the very woman that he was trying to kill only a minute earlier. That's the power of God to change the heart. God did it because he loves marginalized and victims of injustice like Tamar, and he did it because he loves angry self-righteous men who hide their sin and blame other people. He loves sinners, and he longs to form us into a spiritual family grounded in the grace of God and lived out in his justice. What have we seen in this account? We've seen a woman who is unjustly blamed and her life destroyed for it, and we've seen the man who wrongly blamed her and destroyed her life for that and who was ultimately brought to repentance, and yet we see something more because we also see one who came to take the blame. Look at this account in its immediate context within the Joseph narrative. The Joseph narrative, you know, the, they sold their youngest brother, Joseph, into slavery in the previous chapter, and, uh, you know, he goes and, you know, does some amazing stuff down there, and eventually all the brothers end up down there, and the youngest brother ends up uh, accused of, of theft. And, uh, and so, you know, accused of, of, of theft, it's interesting because he's then going to have to stay presumably to be imprisoned until it can be worked out. And, and it was at that point that uh, uh, that Judah actually steps up. You see what a changed man he is. This is in chapter 44 at the end of the chapter. Uh, when, when Benjamin is, is accused and is going to have to be punished, it's Judah who steps up and he says, Blame me instead. Let me stay here. Let me be detained and let my brother go free. He's actually asking to, be, uh, to, to, to take somebody else's blame. This man who used to assign the blame is now taking it willingly, begging to be able to do it. it. He's asking to be the substitute. He's asking to take the blame. This ancestor of Jesus is asking to take the blame so that other people can go free so that the presumed guilty can go free. That's the gospel according to Genesis. We see it in this ancestor of Jesus. And then you back out further and you look at this within the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew 1, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And then later on in Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. As God the Son, Jesus was the only man whoever got to choose his ancestors, and he chose Tamar to be a mother of Jesus. He chose to identify with a brilliant but broken woman who had suffered extreme injustice, and he chose to identify also with the wicked man Judah whose heart he changed. And what's most astounding, Jesus, by choosing these people to be his family, his human family, It's astounding as he chose to identify with them at the point in their story that is most shameful and embarrassing. The child that was born, the child that was conceived on that roadside is the very one who becomes the ancestor of Jesus. It's the kind of God we serve. God that chooses a child of incest to be his ancestor, to be his family, to be his friend, the God who's not ashamed of our most shameful secrets. Is your family a mess? God identifies with you. If your life is a wreck, God identifies with you. Jesus identifies with those who are in trouble. Jesus identifies by choosing these as his family. He's saying, I want you to trust me. I really am a friend of sinners. What's amazing here, is that we see in Jesus, their descendant, the one who would do precisely what Judah asked to do, the one who would actually come to take the blame so that we might be spared. In the movie, The Last Emperor, Young Child, you know, it's, it's the story of the last emperor of China. And in it, uh, you know, the young emperor He's anointed, as, uh, uh, even in childhood, he, he lives a life of luxury with a thousand servants at his hand. And at one point, he's asked, what happens when you do wrong? And he answers, when I do wrong, someone else is punished. And he takes a china vase and he shoves it and shatters it. And then the next scene you see as one of the servants is being beaten for what the king did. It's substitution, and yet the Bible reverses that story. Uh, the reality is that the true king came in order to take the punishment, in order to take the blame for those of us who were the guilty party. That's the cross. It's what Jesus came to do. It's why every church in the world has at its center an instrument of Roman torture, the cross. It's like having an electric chair in the middle of your worship service. It's weird, and it's what every Christian church does because Jesus took his tortured death so that neither Tamar nor Judah would face it. Jesus is the one who stepped up and said, take me and burn me. That's what's happening. The son of Tamar is the God of Tamar and the God of Judah. And Jesus is the one who came to do what Judah eventually wanted to do for his brother. Jesus came and did for us. Let's pray. Father, I give you thanks for your faithful love. Uh, Lord, this season, uh, we are looking at these women who are ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, every one of them has a story of brokenness and pain and sorrow and loss and injustice. And Father, I would want us to sit in that for a moment, to grieve that, because that's so many of us know what it's like in this church to be the victim, to be the one who's blamed, to be the one who's abused, to be the one whose life is just destroyed because someone else had an agenda, and it left us destroyed. Lord, we would cry out that you would hear the tears, see the tears, hear the cries of your people, and that you would make all these things right. We know, Lord Jesus, that the day is coming when we will do that, but we pray for your comfort here and now in the midst of your people that you would bring an end to the pain and an end to the injustice that you would make it right, not just in the coming age, but increasingly, Lord, in this age, in the here, in the now, that we might know you and that justice might roll down like the waters and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Lord, we pray it in the name of Jesus Christ who came to take our blame, the one who was beaten, the one who was savagely tortured, the one who died in our place, that we, Lord, might live. Thank you.